Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight. Um, and especially thank you to you, Emily, and everyone here at the CIC for helping us to put this event on. Um, uh, as she said, as Emily said, my name is Jackie, and I work for AFSI here in Washington, D.C. Um, AFSI, for those of you who don't know who we are, is an international development organization based in Italy. Uh, it was founded in 1972 by some people who were participated in the Communion and Liberation Catholic movement in Italy. Um, and now AFSI is present in over 35 countries around the world uh, with many different, different programs, uh, ranging from education to healthcare, um, some economic development, vocational training kinds of programs, um, environmental and agriculture programs. Um, we have a small office here in Washington, D.C., which is where I sit, and we manage relationships with U.S. entities and, and the U.S. government. Um, so thank you so much for coming out tonight. I'm really pleased to just give you a brief introduction to our topic for this evening and to our speakers. And I'd just like to share with you how we got to, to the point of, present of this of this of this topic for tonight. Um, so AFSI, as an organization, has long held the promotion of human dignity as the core of our mission. And yet, as with many of the essentials in our lives, the depth of meaning contained in these words can go unnoticed or taken for granted. Our daily work at AFSI is not a philosophical discussion about how and why to respect and promote the dignity of the other or of ourselves. But instead, our work consists of other things, defining projects, managing budgets, negotiating partnerships, hiring and training staff, and observing the changes that come about through our presence and activity in the world. Yet we are not shy to affirm that our conviction about the innate, immeasurable, and God-given dignity of each and every single human life is what underpins all we do. It is, it is the reason why AFSI exists in the world, precisely because people living a Christian experience in the Catholic Church became so aware of their own dignity, meaning their own relationship with the infinite made flesh and present among us, that they decided to go out to the ends of the earth carrying with them this positive hypothesis of life. Any organization or company, especially those based on clear ideals and principles, runs the risk of losing touch with those ideals which were there at the beginning. This is a risk also for us at AFSI. And certainly, there are practical things we can do to help ourselves deepen our understanding of what we are all about and what we are after with our work, which others like to call international development. So here we are at AFSI doing our projects, and along comes Notre Dame. And in particular, our friend Paolo Carozza is named as the director of the Kellogg Institute. Paolo is a distinguished human rights lawyer and professor. And about a year ago, Paolo and his colleagues at the Kellogg Institute sent us a provocation. He basically told us, you know, you're not the only ones talking about human dignity. <laughs> uh, many other organizations are also using the same same concept, faith-based groups and organizations and secular ones. So he said to us, why don't we sit down together and talk for a while? Let's unpack what lays hidden underneath the concept of human dignity for you, AFSI, as an organization and for your staff. How does it relate to or shape your programs? 
How do you know if your attempts to promote it succeed or fail? And let's not just do this exercise internally. Let's invite others to the discussion. Let's hear what they have to say and respond to the challenges of, say, the secular world, the academics. So Kellogg Institute at Notre Dame has brought together a range of actors, including AFSI, to participate in these reflections on human dignity. And he has skillfully fostered and guided a healthy debate among an array of perspectives. He and I are just back from a conference on this topic held at Notre Dame's Rome campus. And tonight, we've asked Paolo to tell us a bit about what is behind this initiative and what he has learned so far in the process. So in particular, Paolo, I'd like to ask you, how can the Catholic tradition and thought on human dignity and human development engage with the rest of the world productively? And what might Catholic-inspired organizations like AFSI have to offer? Now, before you answer, <laughs> after Paolo, we're going to have the chance to hear from Professor Andreas Widmer, um, who, as you heard, is a professor of entrepreneurship at CUA School of Business Economics. And we've invited him here tonight to get his take on this initiative, on these concepts that we're, that we're, we're throwing around um, from his perspective as an entrepreneur. So we hope for a lively discussion with the speakers and with all of you gathered here tonight. So please, don't be shy with your questions and comments uh, after we hear from our two speakers. And now I'm very happy to turn the floor over to Professor Paolo Carozza, director of the Kellogg Institute at the University of Notre Dame. Thank you. Thanks, Jackie. Um, it's always wonderful to be back in Washington again. Uh, you know, I used to live here uh, for years and still and was born here, so coming back is always a little bit coming home. Um, so before I get to the, 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 the more narrow question or more the specific part of the question about human dignity, there's a stuff in the title about development from a Catholic perspective. And I think to understand where dignity fits in, it, it's first useful to get a little bit broader context about development, development work, development studies, uh, and, and where a Catholic perspective fits into that, and then to pose the question of then what does dignity have to do with it all. So um, as Jackie mentioned, I direct um, an, an institute at Notre Dame. It's a interdi big interdisciplinary research institute, and human development is one of the two central themes of our institute. Um, so usually in the work of my colleagues and our interlocutors elsewhere, that means going right away to uh, the institutions and processes and economic analysis and all the rest of it of how one fosters development. And that's great. I mean, there's nothing um, problematic about that. Indeed, it's very interesting and stimulating work. But here's the thing. I mean, asking about a, a development from a Catholic perspective means, first of all, stepping back from those questions. In other words, um, there's a need uh, from a Catholic point of view, if you're asking about development, first to, f to ask questions about uh, what precedes the institutions and processes and economics and politics of development. Um, it, it, it just, you know, here, here is the way that it was put uh, by Benedict XVI in his big social encyclical, Caritas and Veritate. He says, in the course of history, it was often maintained that the creation of institutions was sufficient to guarantee the fulfillment of humanity's right to development. Unfortunately, too much confidence was placed in those institutions as if they were able to deliver the desired objective automatically. In reality, institutions by themselves are not enough. No, he's not he's saying they're not important but they're not enough by themselves. Because integral human development is primarily a vocation. 
and therefore it involves a free assumption of responsibility in solidarity on the part of everyone. So, in other words, one could say that the first point of a Catholic perspective on poverty and development tells us that the foremost structural problems of economics and politics require responses that are adequately grounded first in a different kind of structure, the structure of the human person uh, in an anthropology. Now, again, that's not to say that uh, the economic and political and social structures aren't, aren't necessary and important. Uh, but they're not the first question, and indeed not the most important question. So in, the, in that spirit, and to sort of break that open a little bit, I'll, um, I'll give you four examples of uh, trends in uh, international development over recent decades, uh, trends that have made or are making very important contributions to our understanding of the practice and of the impact of development work that have been positive trends, in other words but that I, I'll, I'll argue in some ways we'll see them as being incomplete by themselves, uh, where maybe a perspective that goes back to understanding more fully what the human person is might be able to add something more still to it by reminding us of these broader dimensions of the problem. Okay? So here's one example. I mean, it's, it's well known by anybody who, who is involved in development at all that um, you know, for a long time, there's been a move uh, towards understanding development in a broader and more multidimensional way. In other words, not limiting it merely to the dynamics of economic growth and wealth creation. Uh, you know, an older model of development really saw that as, as the primary, indeed the only thing that one uh, was seeking in the development process. And instead, for a long time, whoops, sorry. Didn't have these little things clipped on. Okay. Instead, for a long time, there have been uh, you know, things like um, the advent of the Human Development Index at the United Nations, which seeks to add a variety of other dimensions of social and human life into the measure of what it means to seek development and achieve it. Uh, there's been theoretical work by people like the Nobel Prize winner Amartya Sen and uh, his followers in developing an understanding of development that really focuses on a range of human capacities, uh, the human capabilities approach. Okay. The Millennium Development Goals, even though not comprehensive as development goals, still you know, sought to bring in other aspects of human and social life, not merely limited to, uh, to you know, income generation or GDP. Um, and, and more recently, as we're looking forward, looking towards the next round of development goals, there's even more work being done, some of it we heard about in, at this conference in Rome, on the missing dimensions of poverty data, how to capture some of the aspects of human well-being that typical measurements of poverty in the development context haven't really paid attention to until now. All these are, are really positive developments and encouraging. And so the question then is, OK, well, so then from a Catholic perspective, a perspective that starts really from an understanding of human persons, what do we have to add to that or to say to that? Well, the first thing, of course, is an endorsement of that approach, right? Um, it's uh, an endorsement of approach that tries to take an integral understanding of human persons and, 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 and lauds in some senses, you know, um, uh, collaborates with this effort to broaden our understanding of what constitutes human development and to seek the full, the full range of it. Um, the, uh, you know, again, I, I won't try to litter this too much with long quotes, but there are a few that I can't, that I can't resist. Um, and this one, again, in, in Caritas and Veritate, um, where, where Benedict, reflecting back on what his predecessor had said, Paul VI, he said, um, you know, uh, 
that he noted that Paul had an, in, an articulated vision of development. He understood the term to indicate the goal of rescuing peoples first and foremost from hunger, deprivation, endemic diseases, and illiteracy. From the economic point of view, this meant their active participation on equal terms in the international economic process. From the social point of view, it meant their evolution into educated societies marked by civil solidarity. From the political point of view, it meant the consolidation of democratic regimes capable of ensuring freedom and peace. You can see a longstanding uh, uh, you know, approach that parallels this broadening of the understanding of what we're seeking in the development process. But then a Catholic approach takes one step further than at least where we are so far. And it harkens back to the first quote that I read about development as a vocation, right? The fullness of accounting for the range of goods that are essential to human flourishing means, uh, from the perspective of, of a Catholic tradition, seeing development in these vocational terms. That, that is, in light of seeking a complete fulfillment of the destiny and meaning of human persons and human communities in the world. Right? So um, one, one more long quote, and then after this I'll, 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 I'll spare you for, from the reading. Um, and, and this one from um, a different statement by John Paul II, where he says, development must not be understood solely in economic terms, but in a way that is fully human. It's not only a question of raising all peoples to the level currently enjoyed by the richest countries, but rather of building up a more decent life through united labor, of concretely enhancing every individual's dignity and creativity, as well as his capacity to respond to his personal vocation and thus to God's call. The apex of development, the apex, it's a very strong word, right? I mean, not just part of development, the apex of development, he says, the highest point, is the exercise of the right and duty to seek God, to know him and to live in accordance with that knowledge. So referring to development as a vocation in this sense, you know, brings us to the recognition that we can't define the dimensions of human flourishing in a complete way, right? Or poverty as a lack of these dimensions without some implicit view of what it means to lead a good and complete life. Um, what is the meaning and destiny of human persons? And thus, in particular, it has to include an openness to uh, the full range of, of, uh, uh, of the dimensions of, of human well-being. So, in other words, although this under the multi-dimensional understanding of poverty that has you know, infused in an important and health healthy way uh, development thinking in recent decades is definitely a move in the right direction. From a Catholic point of view, it's still not quite complete enough to take into account the totality of goods that we should be seeking. So what's, what's still missing, for example? Some of these things that we saw in our discussions in Rome. One could say, for example, that the, the relational elements of human well-being really are not captured by development thinking or development indexes or measures or outcomes. Human beings find their good in relationship to other people. Um, and not simply in measurements of individual well-being. Well, we need to take that into account if we really care about uh, the full flourishing of human persons. Freedom, which is largely conceived of in most development thinking uh, and practice implicitly as a maximization of individual choice, uh, perhaps is a little bit more complicated than that. Freedom is, of course, centrally important to the development process. We heard that in the quotations that I read. Um, but, uh, but the need to ask really what freedom is and how it relates to the ends of human life uh, might add a little bit more. The multidimensional approaches, as much as they capture different elements of human well-being, 
often fail to put those elements together right, into a coherent package. But the human person isn't a fragmented entity in which our economic dimensions are over here and we can talk about our affective dimensions over here and our social relationships over here as if they're not related with one another. They're all interconnected and development thinking has to bring that uh, to bear as well. And, and finally, um, you know, one could say that in some pretty specific areas, development practice and thinking um, is, uh, you know, can be said to be, well, frankly, systematically reductive and blind to at least certain of the aspects of human experience. Uh, in particular, it doesn't really take much account of the religious dimensions of, of men and women's lives. They're simply not studied and not included in development studies and development outcomes and thinking very much. Um, it doesn't really know how to take into account the value of life as self-gift or the, the, of gratuitousness, for example, in the dynamics of human relationships, as much as these are a part of our flourishing. And on the other hand, it does emphasize certain things that one could really question how much they are central or integral to human flourishing and well-being. Uh, there is a tremendous ideological insistence in most development sectors on population control as the key to international development, um, and uh, as opposed to having any kind of a, you know, a, a, a sort of responsible openness to um, the richness so, as a social and economic resource, if nothing else, of human life itself. So there's one area in which a Catholic perspective might, might give something different. The others, I think, will be a little more compact here. A second trend that you know, those of us in development see is uh, there's been a really great uh, insistence in, in recent years on rigorous measurement of development interventions and outcome. I'm really taking seriously the question of what works and what doesn't work and not just relying on conjecture or anecdotal evidence or, or, or whatever else. The Millennium Development Goals helped to spark that. Uh, a lot of the research done by um, you know, some of the most prominent uh, development econo economists today, uh, people like Esther Duflo, for example, um, you know, have pioneered new methods of evaluation, ra randomized control trials and, and other empirical methods that have revolutionized the practices of development uh, in, in terms of our understanding of what works and what doesn't. Well, again, from a perspective of a, a, a Catholic perspective that starts with the human person, what do we say about this? Well, again, first of all, fantastic. These are really important advances in our understanding of development. They help us really to take seriously an attentiveness to reality, uh, as opposed to simply our ideas and preconceptions of what might work in development thinking. Um, and so they're important steps forward. But again, let's think about what something like randomized control trials might miss in the development process. Um, you know, some things that maybe a more articulated human philosophical anthropology might help us to see. Some dimensions of human personhood and well-being aren't really measurable, frankly, in the same way, or at least aren't easily measurable. Think of things that are so essential to human happiness and well-being like hope or desire or solidarity and communion. These are often very important to the dynamics of development, very hard to measure in the ways that, not, not impossible, and, and one of the things we're working on is exactly how to take some of those things and provide some degree of measurement over them. Uh, but it's difficult, and uh, they, they, in some senses, just as the human person 
spills over the boundaries of what can be reduced to measures, so do these aspects of human well-being. Some of them can be contained in measurement and some of them spill over the boundaries of what can be, of, of what can be measured. Similarly, the relationship of our individual well-being to the well-being of communities is hard, is hard to measure. Um, the micro level of impact evaluation is very hard to translate to the macro level of what is good for entire societies on the development front. Relationship of these specific outcomes to contextual factors that are eminently human, like culture and history and the arts and beauty, uh, again, don't really fall into uh, the indexes, right? And, um, uh, and the regression analyses. And maybe above all, development is a question of time. I mean, any of us, even without reflecting on international human development writ large, thinking of personal development, of the development of our, of our communities, of ourselves, of our children, of our friends, uh, understand that development is something that, uh, that requires time and patience and space. And boy, it, there's nothing more um, sort of you know, demanding of immediacy than the results of a randomized controlled trial. So again, it is an area where maybe a Catholic perspective might endorse and, and collaborate and, and really uh, learn from what's happened and also perhaps contribute an additional dimension. A third area has to do with uh, uh, the, er the insistence in development thinking on sustainability or to use a more recent uh, buzzword within the development circles on resilience. Right? The, 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 the talk has now gone towards resilience rather than sustainability. They're not quite the same thing. But both of them you know, try to capture uh, this very important sense that, that you know, development intervention is not one-off. It's designed to have lasting impact. And certainly we don't want to take steps in, uh, in uh, a development process today that compromise the possibility of development tomorrow. Um, so that's an important, an important insight. Um, but again, can sustainability and resilience be thought of simply in systemic terms or simply in terms of uh, the prudent use of material uh, resources of the world as opposed to adding a human dimension to them? Well, again, I, I don't think so. You can't think of sustainability and, and resilience in real sense without thinking of what is the human subject. Um, and you need to ask instead, you know, what kind of development generates and not simply uses resources prudently, but what kind of development generates the human capacity to sustain development? Or to put it a different way, what kind of development interventions generate subjects, human subjects that are capable of becoming the protagonists of their own development in the future? so that it can sustain and go forward. Those capable of taking responsibility, not just for themselves, but for their communities and for the common good. These generating human subjects, uh, it, you know, Pope Francis has referred to, to it as, uh, as seeking um, to, uh, to generate subjects, as is how you put it, capable of becoming the artisans of their own destiny. That's a beautiful phrase, I think. It's, um, you know, uh, the artisans of their own destiny, including the word artisan, right? I mean, artisanship, what is, what is it to be an artisan? It's, it's a craft, it's, um, it's an art, it involves beauty. Uh, it's not 
mass production. It's not manufacturing your destiny, right? Uh, you're an artisan of the destiny. That's, that's, what we're, that's what sustainability really is about in the end. It's about generating a certain kind of moral agency and capacity with respect to one's, one's own needs. And it has, therefore, methodological implications, a lot of which have come out in these discussions that we've been having on dignity. Um, it, you know, it, it tends to emphasize then that the methods of development also have to do things like um, you know, listen to people, <laughs> imagine that, uh, or uh, accompany them as in, in the process of development. Not simply do something for them, uh, but do it with them. Uh, to encounter them and understand uh, what are the human dimensions of their lives in the fullest sense to emphasize local participation in the process of development and the context in which that, that, that happens. This is where subsidiarity, you know, Catholic principle in its root, but certainly not Catholic merely in its application, uh, is, is so, so critical. Um, all of those things are, are dimensions that are necessary in order to generate human resilience and sustainability. The, the fourth and final area that I'll, I'll point out has to do with um, the financing of development efforts. Right? Um, anybody involved in development work today knows that the money's drying up if, if the money that we're talking about is the money of governments and international organizations is flowing to development. Um, and instead, uh, what's replacing it, at least in its important part, is, um, is the funding that comes from private partnerships, from the partnerships between uh, state or development actors and the markets. Uh, and business and commerce. Um, and again, these are, this is in, in many ways a very positive development. You can speak to this much more than I can, uh, being so involved in that world. Um, you know, it, it helps to address uh, you know, questions that have pl plagued the development world of uh, corruption, uh, inefficiency, ineffectiveness, dependence on the state, uh, and so forth. It enhances subsidiarity. So even from a Catholic uh, uh, perspective, um, it helps to enlist the forces of business in constructing the common good and, and responsible uh, social enterprises, all uh, really terrific developments. But one more time, um, a Catholic perspective maybe gives us some reason for caution here, too. What else is missing? What are the limits of a market and state logic to, uh, to development? Well, again, you know, I said before, certain human goods aren't particularly measurable, and that's true of the market, too. Um, as you know, John Paul II emphasized this, Benedict XVI um, uh, put it you know, really so in his usual style with uh, precision and, and eloquence. He says, in order to defeat underdevelopment, action is required not only on improving exchange-based transactions, but above all on gradually increasing openness in a world context to forms of economic activity marked by quotas of gratuitousness. Quotas of gratuitousness and communion, right? And he goes on, the exclusively binary model of market plus state is corrosive of society. While economic forms based on solidarity, which find their natural home in civil society, without being restricted to it, build up society. The market of gratuitousness does not exist. Okay. So civil society is needed in ways that uh, the current logic may undervalue, 
right? Groups of mutual aid and interdependence, including communities of faith where people so often find their belonging and find the, the kind of solidarity to help one another, and including above all the family. It's remarkable how much the family as a social unit is missing some, from so much of the development analysis and thinking and, and interventions. Children are separated analytically from their families as a unit of well-being for, for development purposes uh, so often. One of Avsi's project in, in Uganda that we've been involved with too, the SCORE project, seeks to sort of address that problem by looking at interventions aimed at family well-being. And it's a new and important project for precisely uh, this reason because it contributes to a correction of this kind of reduction uh, of, of, of the thinking to um, the dynamics of an excessive kind of individualism. So you see at all four of these examples, what they have in common is that you know, notwithstanding certain really important uh, and positive steps forward in the, in the process of development, um, there is something that I think could be added to the current dynamics by focusing a little bit more clearly and explicitly on, on the question of, well, what, what does it really mean, before we get to these questions, to live a full and flourishing human life? Without that question, development will always be somewhat less successful, somewhat more partial, okay? So the challenge of adding that additional question, it's quick, I have to be quick to say, is um, what, I, what I think of as a bi-directional one, okay? In other words, it's not just the development world that needs to be more open to some of the larger questions about human well-being. It's also the Catholic world uh, that needs to you know, be able to show persuasively and to, to make a, an affirmative you know, proposition that uh, what is on offer is in fact helpful for everybody, not just for uh, you know, uh, those of us in a little Catholic ghetto, um, but, but to, in the service of all of humanity. Right? So what can we, those of us who are Catholics and interested in this, these questions, do systemically to help foster the conditions for bringing a fuller understanding of human persons to bear on development dynamics generally. And this finally is where the Kellogg project, the Notre Dame project on human dignity fits into the picture, okay? Comes into play. Um, you know, what we hope for is, uh, is to, 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 to broaden the discussion uh, within the development field, not just among Catholic actors, but in the entirety of the development field, saying, you know, what are the, the dimensions, what is the human dimension that we're really after? in development work as a whole, okay? And so much of that happens through the language of dignity. Um, as Jackie mentioned, it's pervasive. It's amazing when you start digging into it, how many development organizations cite dignity in their mission statements or in their goals or their, their description of their work. It's everywhere, uh, practitioners, organizations, um, at, at every level. And at the same time, it's immediately obvious how, how much of them um, really, I, I don't mean this as a criticism, but just an, an observable fact, have never taken any further step to sort of ask, well, but then what, what does that really mean? Well, why, what, are we what are we talking about when we're talking about, about dignity? Uh, there is this need to deepen our understanding, uh, not only of what it means, but of what the corresponding implications in practice are uh, of its meaning. So when we say, you know, well, we care about the value of human persons, Dignity is just that, right? It's the, it's the Latin root of it, it's dignitas, it's value, it's worth. We're talking about the worth of human persons. Where does that come from? Um, you know, what, what do human persons and communities really require to flourish? And, and conversely, what kinds of harms and deprivations are incompatible 
with an authentic understanding of the flourishing of human persons and communities? How can we foster a more integral approach? The, these are the goals of this, of this inquiry into uh, the meaning of dignity. And there are really two challenges in trying to answer any of those problems, or at least challenges in, in let's say, in two different areas that are interrelated. Okay? Um, and this, this is really what we were trying to do two weeks ago in Rome together uh, with a variety of scholars and practitioners and policymakers, including um, people from AVSI. The first sort of problem is a conceptual one, right? Um, when we talk about dignity, how, how do we come to a deeper understanding, a broader consensus about what it means? This, we aren't the first people to be talking about dignity. There's lots of dignity discourse going on in the world, right? In the human rights field, in the bioethics field, uh, it's, you know, um, it's, it's a word that is thrown about a lot and casually and, and clearly, right, let's, let's not kid ourselves, in highly incompatible and contradictory ways. So how do we get beyond the impasse of simply people asserting different concepts of dignity at one another, right? Um, and instead trying to, you know, arrive at, uh, at, at a, a concept that isn't simply going to be empty or ideological. Um, so in responding to that problem, uh, you know, the, the, the Dignity and Development Project is really trying to say, look, um, we can't treat this simply as a speculative theoretical problem. To answer the question of what dignity means requires reflecting on human experience, right? Um, dignity isn't just an abstraction. It's something that people live. It's something that people encounter. It's something that people experience as part of their lives and in meeting others. So let's have a relationship uh, let, let, let's, let's you know, have experience enter into the relationship, the experience of practitioners in particular, the experience of development organizations like AVSI uh, that, that on the ground see what works, what doesn't, when human person's uh, dignity is taken into account and so forth. Um, we have to cross those, these divides between those of us in the academy that are theoretically speculating on a philosophical level of the meaning of dignity. That's important too, right? But not by itself. It has to touch the reality of experience. And the second category of difficulty is that, you know, even if we were to arrive at some, you know, more uh, common understanding of what it might mean at a conceptual level, how do we put it into practice? How do we operationalize this understanding of dignity? Right? How do we, for example, disaggregate a big, vague concept and say, okay, what are the elements of dignity if we're doing interventions in the health sector, or in the education sector, uh, or in, uh, in trying to foster work and entrepreneurship, and, and, and so forth? Or you know, how, how do we understand um, what are the implications in practice of the fact that dignity, in some you know, sort of interesting way, is both a premise of development, right? In other words, you start from a recognition that there's already dignity in people. That's why we, we seek development. But also, it's an outcome that we seek. Right? We seek conditions in which dignity can be lived more fully. So it's both, both at the beginning and the end of the process. So you know, translating it into practice becomes kind of co complicated in, in, that, in that area. Or you know, if we experience dignity at a very small and intimate level, the, the level of an individual or a small community, a, a family, a school, um, how do we translate that into the decisions we have to make about large-scale policy decisions with regard to development? Um, how, how, does, how does one, you know, to, to use the jargon, how does one scale dignity 
it seems kind of hard to do uh, operationally. And, and finally, what do we even consider to be the evidence of dignity after we've made the intervention, right? Okay, so we think a different particular intervention is going to enhance dignity, and, you know, and so we, we undertake the project. But it's really useful to know afterwards whether we've been successful or not, right? So we know whether to do it again or to change something or to try something new. Um, so what is the evidence that we would have to take into account if the criterion that we're trying to satisfy is respect, comprehensive respect for human dignity? Okay? So the design of this dignity and development project and the collaboration throughout it with AVSI is really sort of built around these, this set of challenges, finding a central place for experience in our reflections on dignity. Um, you know, so a dialogue between theory and practice, uh, bringing together different discourses of dignity, even across uh, different religious dimensions or the, 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 the divide between religiously based and secular approaches to development. Disaggregating what we mean by dignity and thinking hard about how we find the evidence and of how it's respected and, and really using the most rigorous methods of social science that we have available today in order to do that. And finally, you know, at the end, really reflecting in a comprehensive and systemic way about all, how all of that can and should have very broad implications at the global policy level. For example, you know, we're trying now to formulate the post-2015 sustainable development agenda of the United Nations. Where does dignity fit into the 100 and, what are we at now, 179 goals of, the, of it? I don't think dignity is in there right now. What is it? Maybe, you know, it's reached 180. It's a little bit more every day. So just to wrap up and, and close this, I've gone on uh, too long already. We, we have to keep re returning is, is the fundamental point. We have to keep returning to the beginning, right? Um, to the beginning of the problem of development. The fullness of the problem of development is in the end uh, the fullness of the question of what generates a new person, right? a new humanity. And that can't ever be merely a technical question can never be merely an economic question uh, or a political question. Uh, Pope Francis summed, summed up the task, I, I think, really well in, in, one of the, uh, you know, in one of these new forms of papal intervention, the newspaper interview. Uh, um, it, but he said, uh, uh, this is one of the few less controversial things he said, but therefore one of the more overlooked things that he said, uh, and, and, and it's really worthwhile, he said, um, you know, and I, I think we need to take this to heart in thinking of a, of a big project like this. We must not focus on occupying the spaces where power is exercised, but rather on starting long-run historical processes. We must initiate processes rather than occupy spaces. God manifests himself in time and is present in the processes of history. This gives priority to actions that give birth to new historical dynamics and it requires patience, waiting. Thank you. Your reaction, <clears throat> Well, Paolo, it's beautiful. And I, we have to say that we know each other, so we know where we're coming from. <laughs> so it's a little hard to, to disagree on some things. But no, maybe, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but let me add. Let me do this. We could just do like the, the Monty Python skit, yeah. you know, the argument department. Exactly. Have you ever seen that one? Yeah, right? the argument department. Anyway, sorry. I'll, let me add to this a bit. So uh, I want to make three main points. I want to talk about dignity, methodology, and then work and entrepreneurship as a, as a form of development. Um, 
interesting that you speak of human dignity. I just finished doing some research um, with a few colleagues on, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, and, I, and when you face a problem, you always start with the market. People have always the wrong impression with entrepreneurs that they start to figure something out and then say, hey, Eureka, I have it. No, you, it starts the other way around. You go into the market and you find the problem, and then you solve it. That's, that's how this works. And so when I approach something like this, like development, I, I first start to do market research to say, what's the landscape? It's called, you know, competitive landscape. And often, <clears throat> especially in the marketing side, uh, this has to do with words, and you can research what words mean to people. And interesting enough, uh, human dignity, what does it mean to people? The first thing I measured is how much does it resonate as a term? And we found that dignity, human dignity resonates 70% among the American population. <laughs> that is off the charts. No wonder everybody and their brothers using this term. This is one of the highest ranks you can get. Seven, and no, try to put 10 Americans into a room and see how much they agree on something. And 70% agreement is, is just out of, off the charts. So, but then do you know what dignity means? You know, one thing is to say, I love this term. The other thing is, so what does it mean to you? And that's where things split. And we did this, we, in order to find out what dignity is, what we do is, uh, is uh, we do Google Analytics. And we find out in what content do people, or in what context do people look for human dignity. Because usually they don't just say, what uh, human dignity, although the highest search term was human dignity definition. Uh, <laughs> so you, you're right there, say, I love the term. What does it mean? Uh, but right behind that, what we found is that human dignity as a term is mostly regarded as having to do with human rights, so legal human rights, and human choice. Yeah, the, the ability, our ability to choose has to do with human dignity. That's the popular, if you look at Google, it's not 100% scientific, but if, if you look at the Google searches, that's what people have to do. Uh, that's what people look for. But you see from the Catholic perspective, that is completely off. That's completely out in left field. Human dignity means, is an anthropological term for Catholics, for Christians in general. It means that you are, that the human person is made in the image and likeness of God. That means you're unrepeatable. We are not some accident. Every person who, was con who is conceived is willed, willed, and is unrepeatable. If you get rid of that person, there is an opportunity gone forever. You only, only every person only exists once in the entire history of the world. So that's an anthropological view of the, of the human person. And <clears throat> when I look, so I worked in development, in, I did a lot of work with entrepreneurs in emerging markets. And I worked with a lot of, not with, but I came in touch with a lot of development efforts. And what I found is that there are two teams, and it comes down to this anthropological view. There are two teams who are trying to solve the problems of this earth that we have. And they both have a different view. They say, you can either say people are the problem or people are the solution. You can, you can replace now any problem and say environment, people are the problem. Or environment, people are the solution. Population, people are the problem or people are the solution. Development, people are the problem or the solution. That is the, the, the nations where, it's born, where your effort is born. It's, your, it's your, uh, your mental model is what I would call that. 
is that you see humans as a problem or as a solution, and that calls for radically different trajectories of the solution, even though you start off with your, your, your view of, of human dignity. What I see with the problem side, that goes back to, it's a Malthusian, you know, the pa paradox of saying, well, we're going to run out of food, but then, but then actually the humans as a problem, as a solution, always win because they figured out how to do more farming and so on. And, um, and so I'm, the, it's important to notice that the Christian, the Catholic view is squarely on the side of saying humans are the solution to any problem that we face on Earth. Um, <clears throat> Humans are, as a matter of fact, the only investment with infinite return. There's no other investment you can find that has infinite return. It keeps giving. The perfect investment is in human beings because they can invent over and over and over. And the more you use your brain, it doesn't, you can't use it up. Although I've tried. <laughs> now let me go to the, uh, uh, and, and you see, then we have to, the methodology has to, uh, has, uh, we have to look at that. The, the big differentiation there I'd like to make is that there is a completely different, we're, we're throwing two things into the same bucket and we ought not. And that is when we talk about Haiti and the earthquake and we talk about development in the slums of, of, uh, of uh, Buenos Aires or, or of, uh, of Kenya, or, uh, of, you know, you name it in Kigali in Rwanda or something, those are two different problems. One is a humanitarian crisis, and the other one is a need for economic development. Those two should never touch each other in the, in the sense of this, the same person that you send to go fix what happened after an earthquake cannot be the same people that you send in to help people do economic development. Because a crisis, by definition, is short term. And after a while, you, the crisis becomes, is over. If it would be a long-term crisis, is almost an, a contradiction in term, that a long-term crisis becomes the status quo, and there you'd need to engage development to get out of it. And I think that's a, a distinction that crisis, think of crisis as, the, as the, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And think of development as the parable of the profitable servant. Yeah? So the, these two are completely different. Uh, I'd like to make a, wall, a firewall between those two. Um, what you do in crisis is sympathy. You have sympathy. You take over, you help the person, and, and you do that. In development, you do empathy. You do not touch anything. You're basically more a counselor, a friend, uh, where you call accompaniment. That's what development is. You don't do it. You accompany somebody. You say, did you ever think of why this keeps happening or that keeps happening? And, and the person who needs to change it is you, not the person who does the intervention. So in, cha in, chari uh, in crisis, you need charity. In development, you need investment to enable the person to actually help. In development also, a an overlooked part of this is culture. That development is a cultural transformation a cultural growth to see, to understand what the issues are and to work on changing them. But our world has not, got, has not understood this. <clears throat> I, my numbers are a couple of years old, but think of Africa as a continent. Africa has 14% of humanity that live in Africa, 14 out of 100. 36% of every dollar of charity goes to Africa. But on foreign direct investment, which is the money, is the risk money that runs around the world saying, do you have an opportunity? You know, I'd like to take a risk. I want to invest in a high risk opportunity. Of that money, 
only 4%, 4.6%, about 4% of that money goes to Africa. That is why we're trying to solve something with charity that needs to be solved with investment. As a matter of fact, uh, <clears throat> we even take uh, we even take that that uh, that uh, you know because we merge the two things, we come up with the wrong solutions. John Paul II lamented that we call poverty that we measure poverty by how many dollars a day do you live on a dollar twenty five. He's a great philosopher, and he says, "Look, guys, you need to think more about the problem statement before you get to the solution. That problem statement is flawed." Because what does it call for, the problem statement of $1.25? I have $1.25. He has $5. What should we do? All right? Give me the money. <laughs> Give me the money. But that's, fa that's an economic fallacy. The, the, the economy is not a, a zero-sum game. It's not a fixed pie. If we would start to do business together, we would actually multiply the money in the room, and, there's a, there, and we would inc increase the pie. That's what, that would happen. You shouldn't give me the money. You should invest it in me to let me create value so that the, the whole overall pie of the economy increases. That's where, where we talk about the poor and we come up with the solution of, of, of redistribution of money, which is a fallacy. What we need to do is to look at investment. We can show research that $1 of an investment in a small and medium-sized company creates $12 in the local economy. How much does a, a dollar of charity create in economic development? You know, doing charity in a humanitarian crisis is a non-negotiable. It's a basic measure of who is human and who isn't, right? But on economic development, a dollar of charity might actually be a net loss to the economy, right? But a dollar of investment in an SME it creates $12 uh, in the larger um, economy. So <clears throat> what this... What this means is that we have to look at, you see, that, that miracle of the economy of doing something and creating value and enlarging the pie, that is beyond biology. So, you know, I, I can work, my dog can't work. I'm a human being and the dog is an animal. So the fact, we're biologically almost the same, but I can work and they can't. So the difference between work has to be something more, something transcendent about us that, that the animal can't do. It can't be biological because it's very, we're very similar. Work is a spiritual activity. Because when we were created, God asked us to be and, and made us in his image and likeness. And what's the first thing we understand about God in the Bible? God is a creator. God works. He actually started off. The first thing you hear of God is he works. That guy works. Right? He has a thought, he works on it, and then there's the product. Isn't that exactly what we're called to do when we are called to work? You see, when we work, we imitate God. And when we work, we participate in God's creative power. We get to, with the privilege to further develop, further develop, an, or, or yeah, further develop or invent the, this Garden of Eden, this earth that we are on. Work, John Paul says, is so, uh, is so central to humanity that we need to look at this as the poor people, who, somebody without a job, not as a problem. See, the poor person is not a problem. If the poor person is a problem, pretty soon they'll get rid of the poor people. We do this fallacy all the time with suffering. 
that somebody who's suffering, if you kill them, you think you got rid of suffering? No, you didn't. You got rid of the sufferer. And many of our development efforts are trying to solve poverty and getting rid of the poor. That is a fallacy. That's not, that doesn't work. What, what needs to be happening is that we see the, the human person as the center of this and having this innate dignity that we have a reference to uh, for, and that we allow that person, we see the poor person simply as a person with unfulfilled potential. That if they could work and participate, that they would actually create great value and contribute to our society much more than they contribute, contribute now. John Paul said, as the dollar at 25, instead of the dollar and 25 question or, or problem statement, you should ask, you should, he defined poverty as being, the, to be poor is to be excluded from networks of productivity and exchange. That is one of the smartest things I've ever heard in my life because that is a rich problem statement to say these poor people are excluded from networks of productivity and exchange. Then the solution becomes, how can we integrate the poor into our networks of productivity and exchange? That's a solution to poverty, and it involves work, of which, of which John Paul says that work, when we work, you see, we don't just make more, but we become more. Great, so now we're going to open up to questions, although I'm, I'm going to get us started. Um, and I'm gonna give each of you guys just a question, um, hopefully, Paolo, not throwing you too much of a curveball here, but also giving you the chance if you would like to respond to anything that Andreas um, has said. So, um, Paolo, what I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, you mentioned that uh, dignity is used in many different ways, it's kind of thrown around. Um, we live in a world in which people use, can use dignity to mean things that really do go quite against our conception of the human person as Catholic, from a Catholic perspective. I'm getting to the question of truth. You know, what, are we, what do we, what can we have to say about a true um, conception of the human person um, to the world? And, and then for Andreas, um, Question for you. You you said that uh, it's very provocative when you said that charity could actually be a negative investment, right? Mm -hmm. um, my question is, are there different kinds of charity out there? Some that maybe do do something positive in terms of building up communities, uh, link as you just the last comment that you made, linking the poor into the social fabric. Mm -hmm the social, like the community, even productive systems. Um, can you see different types of charity and maybe mm -hmm. help us understand the value of, of yeah. charity? Easy questions. <laughs> so, um, uh, well, let me, let me say a couple things which, both responds to your question, at least in part, uh, Jackie, and, and also um, will respond in part to what Andreas said and, and maybe take issue, but although I, I yeah. expect that, in fact, we don't disagree, but maybe it was just a, a way of phrasing it. Um, uh, Andreas, you said at one point that the, the, the emphasis on the importance of choice as the definition of dignity is completely off. Mm -hmm. 
I actually don't think it is. Mm -hmm. uh, including from a Catholic perspective, it's not completely off. Right? Um, the question of freedom is right on. The question of freedom, okay? Um, and, uh, and it is quite corresponding to what it means to be human and to, to experience human dignity to have an authentic experience of freedom, which includes, in, in, as well as other things, uh, the capacity to make certain kinds of choices and decisions about one's life and one's well-being and one's choice of vocation and, and, uh, and one's plan of life, right? We, you know, none of us are capable of realizing every human good or like we have to make choices. We follow a particular path. We, we try to foster that in our children. Um, and it's not just in the individualistic, materialistic, obsessed Western you know, or North Atlantic world where, where, where this kind of, of, that kind of freedom is, is uh, valued and exalted. It's in the places that you work you know, as well. And um, uh, because God made us free, mm -hmm. right? Again, as human made us free. Free will is, is an important part of that. And, and this is, that seems to me where it, it connects so importantly to, to truth, too. Um, you know, the, the one document that I know of, the only document that I know of in the Catholic uh, magisterial, uh, you, you know, canon um, that includes the word dignity in the title is Dignitatis Humanae. It's the document in which the Second Vatican Council mm -hmm. affirms the importance of religious freedom. Mm -hmm. right? um, and the entire document is about the way dignity is associated with individual freedom. An individual freedom that needs to be respected and protected even in law, even when it's wrong, right? Uh, so even, you know, so the, it, the, the, the fact of the human person being fundamentally structured as a seeker of the truth is what needs to be protected, even more than whether the choice is in fact the right one or not, right? So if that's true, then you know, how do we seek truth and development? Well, it's, you know, it, it, it strikes me as why it's, it, there's sort of two, two ways here, two things that are, that are um, essential to, to getting at it. I don't have the answer, right? I don't pre pretend to have an answer. But I'm sure that whatever the answer is has at least two dimensions to it. One is we have to understand that development is never just for the other person, it's for me, right? Never just for the other person. Right? Development is a relationship. And so any time that I'm involved in development and seeking the development, fostering the development, it's about my development as much as the others. Right? Um, and, you know, and, that, and that begins to respect you know, what, what Pope Benedict said and, and Francis has repeated when he says, we don't possess the truth. Right? We live in a relationship with the truth. We never possess the truth. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that um, development as a whole, I mean, a, a different word that could be used for development is education, right? I mean, education and development are hand in hand. They're, they're in some senses synonymous. Um, uh, and that, uh, you know, just as an authentic education is a process of, 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 of movement, towards a deeper understanding and a more comprehensive stand, uh, understanding of the totality of reality, the same with development. So, uh, so if, if the truth of our, of our well-being and our freedom uh, is, is something never to, that we cannot possess and that is always to be achieved and we have to respect the freedom, including the freedom of choices in the meantime, then it begins to structure, I think, a little bit of what we're doing when we, develop, when we, when we talk about development. 
<clears throat> to answer your your right on the human dignity that the choice the way you you phrase it I would be in agreement that we we are free uh, humans are free to choose uh, here I mean more what we found is more that it had to do with law rights and choice so to say is that um, uh, that it had to do with uh, defending uh, certain legal rights and so on that that would be uh, far away from what what a Christian would agree with. Um, sort of a utilitarian view of things. Um, and that's why I say it's far off. As to that idea of charity, I've, I've grown very suspect of charity. And you say development is never just for the other person, but for both of us. And that's beautiful. But we've gone very, very far that the wrong way on this is that we have gone so far with development being for both for it, because we are a very egotistical society we have gone so far to make ourselves feel good by helping others that our helping starts to hurt and we keep helping anyway because it's so good for us <laughs> yeah and uh, i've seen that oh i cannot tell you how often that that that's why i then see this quote you said where then there's a deficit of, of uh, uh, being grateful. You know, I, I've been in, in developing countries where I go to the so local watering hole of the aid workers, and the, all the people there, and I'm, it pains me to say it, but all the people there hate the locals because they're saying they're not grateful enough and they're not doing what I'm telling them to do. Because if they would just do what I tell them to do, they'd be so much better off. And of course, then I say, you might be in the wrong career. And, <laughs> and, then, and then they're saying, no, but that's my plan. You know, I want, I, my life plan is to help people. And, and so I've become very uh, uh, sad or, or cynical about this, which I actually uh, want to be guarded against cynicism because there is a true, um, you know, there's th that, that feeling is actually something good to start with, that you want to help people. But we just have to learn that helping sometimes hurts. And helping hurts when you start to move, and, and the, the distinction I make, when you talk about humanitarian issues, and um, we deal with that. And I would even put um, the, just the basis of education as a humanitarian crisis. That today, if you don't know how to read and write, to, to me, that's a humanitarian disaster. Because it basically uh, uh, leads to a human crisis that, that uh, you know, could kill you, basically. So that, I put that on that side. Um, I'm very concerned about people having, everybody has a heart for the poor. It's easy to have a heart for the poor, but do you have a mind for the poor? Do you know what helps the poor people to, to get out of poverty? And what they need more, we have gone so much with the charity that now we need to look at the investment side of things as well. And that goes hand in hand. And I think what, we're, what you're doing in some of the projects you're, you're dealing with are, is exactly that, that you're giving the people, you're, you're, you're in that sense preparing the environment for investment. Because before somebody can read or write, there's no point in, giving, in, in doing an investment there. Before somebody has rule of law, you can't bring an investment there. It's just not, that's, uh, that's just not going to happen. A, a, a little, uh, just a, a little plug. So one of the collaborators in this Dignity Project and a, and, and a friend who <clears throat> Jackie met in Rome too is a very fine economist at the University of San Francisco named Bruce Weidick. Um, and uh, 
Weidig has also written a novel recently. You probably didn't know this about him. He's written a novel. It's called The Taste, uh, the Taste of Many Mountains. And it's a novel about why fair trade coffee doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and, <laughs> and it's, uh, it, one of the central themes of the novel is about how the people involved in development are much more attached to doing those things that make them feel good yeah. rather than those things that actually contribute yeah. substantively to the, 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 the well-being of, of the other of people. the New York cocktail party right. talk. Yeah. And anyway, it's you know I thought we gave rid of, we got rid of indulgences a long time ago, but now the new indulgence is you can go to the developing country and take some pictures with poor people, and then you're all they're off more the expensive hook. than they used to be. Yeah. Okay, questions, please. There's a microphone, um, so please we'll start over here, and then yep with Father uh, Jenner. Well, first of all, thank you both for your beautiful presentations. Uh, question for you, Paolo. Um, you're very tantalizing with the, the promise to develop a model in your, in your institute that takes into account the demand for scalability, measurement, evidence-based, mm -hmm. right? And also human dignity. Could you give us some examples of, I mean, because the way that you said it, it sounded exactly like an oxymoron, you know, that you're talking about something which is not measurable, which is not scalable, and which is not evidence-based. So could you... Yeah, so that's like, should I take several questions first and do, do that? that? Okay. Do that. All right. Because I think there are, there are a number of hands. Um, how about over here? Hi, yeah, I wanted to ask you guys, both of you, um, in the context of development, if you see any kind of practical tensions between the notion of solidarity, oh, sorry, the notions of common good and the notion of subsidiarity. Um, and how the tensions in between them? tensions mm -hmm. between the two. If you see those kinds of tensions, if not, or if you do, how do you reconcile those? How do you determine the proper role of governments and what levels of governments should be involved at various different levels of development? And I also wanted to ask, um, in terms of private investment into these kinds of countries, isn't private investment a kind of the charity benefits me 2.0 kind of thing where it benefits me more than charity would benefit me and how does that make things better thank you thank you both for the interesting uh, thoughts that you um, there was just uh, one part that uh, paulo when you mentioned uh, francis quote about uh, not occupying spaces in power, but rather uh, start new processes. I, I kind of, this is very, um, I don't know, make me think of a personal question that I have about career choices, but I think that is relevant maybe for other people as Catholics in development work, because I've been a consultant for the World Bank for some time, uh, but uh, so basically, uh, facing some frustration with uh, the 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 little power that some sometimes I have in uh, influencing decisions or in the choice of what we measure and what we can do or you know the priorities etc. Uh, so sometimes I feel like I would go rather work for a small NGO or foundation or something where you know there is more of a uh, overlapping between my own values and, and you know ideas as a Catholic, but then someone, actually a very good Catholic friend, made me this objection and said, "Yeah, but they have, they don't have power." 
So, you know, of course, at the World Bank, uh, I, I've seen in my five years there, you know, incredible success and incredible failure. No, so you have this this mm, multiplier uh, factor of the resources that you have. No, so you know, of course, I I, I kind of suspect that I'm, this is a pretty. I mean, I'm. This question is very materialistic in a sense, but so what you said uh, opened up a new, a new possibility. You know, but I, I would like for you to to give to explain a little bit more, expand uh, on this uh, uh, on Francis' suggestion that I I actually didn't know about. Thanks. Francis, okay. Um, well, with just three uh, terrific, terrific uh, questions. So scalability. Um, Right, so I, I mean, I, I tried to say um, in the hurried way that, you know, in the time I had it, um, uh, that not everything can be measured. But that implies, of course, negatively that some things can, including some things that are intimately related to dignity. So I don't want to, you know, suggest that they're two separate worlds. Um, but there are things that spill over, right, uh, beyond the boundaries of, of what can be measured that we still need to pay attention to and that, that are important. Um, so then how does that relate to scalability? Well, um, it, you know, it does mean that some things probably can't be scaled, right? Um, that to the extent that development really does depend on, on, on uh, a, a human presence, um, it's kind of hard to say, well, okay, I mean, Jackie's going to be present, you know, all over, right? They're gonna, we're going to start cloning Jackie um, in order to scale up development. Um, uh, but... But there are questions um, about the methods that are used in particular development projects that then can be applied more broadly, can be repeated, can be replicated, can, including replicated on, on different scales. Um, now, that, that may or may not be the kind of scale that at the end satisfies our, our World Bank you know, staff here in their investments. But let's, let's start using some tangible examples. I didn't really have any. I mean, I've, you know, I've had the privilege of visiting a few different um, OVC projects in different parts of the world in, in recent years. And um, you know, think of something like um, uh, you know, the, the, the initiative uh, of, uh, that OVC is involved with um, that's run by uh, an organization in Sao Paulo that helps families um, buy homes, okay? Um, they uh, in pool resources together. They uh, collaborate in order to purchase land. They build the homes of these families. And, um, and then, and through the entire process, the families are intimately accompanied in educational process too about, you know, what, what this all means and how to, how to sustain it, what it means for their children, uh, what it means to help one another and to collaborate in it. And, um, you know, now in a pretty short order, this has gone from being sort of an interesting experiment in, you know, helping a few families build homes uh, to, uh, I think when I was there, you might know the numbers better, I think we're talking about something on the order of 80,000 homes. And uh, now that's a development project that has reached the next generation of people. So out of the families in those 80,000 homes, 50,000 young people have gone to the universities in Sao Paulo who otherwise wouldn't have. I mean, that's, a, that's scale, right? 
Um, and it's scale that starts with the intimacy of the presence of this couple, Marcos and Closa, who are at the center of it, who decided to seriously accompany the people who they were living with in a process of education to help them take each step. Or one other example. I mean, you know, uh, I was in Kampala, and um, we were in the slums of Kampala, and uh, it was taken, you know, to visit a school, right? It's called the, Lui the Luigi Giussani High School. And honest to God, you go through the gates of this place, and I, I thought that like all of a sudden I had been magically transported to Finland, right? Because you go in and you think, this is impossible. This school is so beautiful. The quality of the education is so high. For the most marginalized people in Kampala, they're getting the best test scores in the city after it being open just three or four years. And everything is about it is beautiful. And you think, this is impossible. It's impossible, OK? So, all right, F so fine. You finally come to terms that, in fact, you haven't been transported magically to Finland. This is still Kampala. So now, can you do it again? OK, well, so obviously is supporting um, a, uh, an organization in Kampala called the Permanent Center for Education that we at Notre Dame are also helping in doing evaluations, right? And the evaluations that we're doing are impact evaluations of whether the, the, the pedagogical methods being developed at the PCE are capable of being replicated so that that high school in all of its extraordinary sort of singularity can be repeated through the repetition of a series, through a methodological approach to education and companionship of these students and of their families so that it can be done you know, down the road in Jinja and across the border in Nairobi and, and in onwards. In public schools and in private schools exactly. and in all sorts of schools. So it, it's not scalability in the same way, right? As, as simply saying, OK, we're, we're going to set aside the human factor and treat a development intervention merely as an impersonal set of systemic institutional you know, qualities. Right? And that's what gets scaled. You have to maintain the human dimension to it. But that doesn't mean that you can't have progress at significantly greater levels. You know, after all, I mean, you know, and this goes back now to, to the, the next question uh, about, um, uh, you know, about power and space and, and historical processes. I mean, what has changed human history? Um, it's been you know, the, the presence of certain exceptional persons in small groups who, with the patience of time, uh, have created, uh, you know, something genuinely new in the world that's, uh, that's attractive and that, you know, um, uh, you know, I mean, it was, I, I don't know, it, it was so, uh, as, as, as a friend, I'm thinking of this in part just because of, you know, of a friend, a friend of many of us who died uh, last week, Lorenzo Albacete, used to say, you know, when, uh, uh, when Europe was in crisis and there was poverty and there was plague and there was corruption in all of the institutions of the church and the crown, um, uh, that's when this man named Francis kissed a leper. Right? It's a very suggestive kind of you know, observation about history. Now, on the other hand, does that mean we stay away from power? Well, no. I mean, it just means that you know, um, it's a it's it's an invitation to think about what really matters and what we do. Right. Um, so we're you know being realistic doesn't mean saying, well, I, I I'm going to be a purist, right, and stay away from the quarters of power and of money and of institutions, right. 
Um, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a purely sort of, from my point of view, kind of moralistic response, not a very realistic one. Um, uh, but, but so the real challenge is not do we use power or not? The question is do we use power with a certain kind of self-awareness that, that what really is going to make the difference is not the decision that I make about the instruments of power that I have in my hands, um, but what, what is the, you know, the deeper good that I'm recognizing and serving in doing so? How can I do you know, something with, with what I've been given in my hands yeah. that really brings something new and interesting into the world? I also want to start with, the, with you who work for the World Bank. And I think it has to do with your vocation, uh, your secondary vocation of um, what are you called to. I think starting an NGO is, is a bit like an entrepreneur. And working at the World Bank is a bit like working at IBM, right? And so different people have different gifts. And I think what you want to do is to say, if you just go there to have a safe job and hide behind a pillar somewhere, then that's probably, in any case, not a good way to go because you're not really flourishing. But if you're called to excellence and that excellence would really work at the World Bank and you could make a career and beat 11 in there, that's a great idea to do. And so I would look at that and say, do you have that gift? If not, maybe you have the gift to do something in an NGO or, or in a small company. Um, and as to the question about measuring, there is a <clears throat> there is a framework called the seven forms of capital by a friend of mine. He was a business partner of mine, Michael Fairbanks. And if you Google it, you'll find some material on it. And what he does is he measures social capital. And the highest form of capital is culture. And, and he, he suggests several ways. He was actually doing this at the World Bank to, to try to measure this, measure social capital. And this is where the organization uh, obviously creates social capital. So if you don't have, uh, you know, having a, a home environment, um, and, you know, what they say, a picket fence around your, around your home and being married and having the kids and all that, that creates social capital that scales infinitely. Right? We know from a hundred times of research that that scales infinitely. The children are better off, the children's children, and the society as a whole gets better off. It's like sort of the broken window theory. Um, so that is absolutely measurable and absolutely scalable, even more so than just financial measurements. And then to the financial measurement, uh, but I, I'm going to use this investment as charity 2.0. Um, even, you know, they say that philanthrocapitalism is charity 2.0. Um, I think investment itself isn't because that you, you're still too stooped in the uh, fixed pie in the zero-sum game. When I invest a dollar of my money and get uh, $2 back, $12 are created in the local economy. And the whole, the whole idea of doing business means um, that you act in your self-interest, which is actually increasing the common good. We make often a mistake between self-interest and selfishness. Business are, businesses cannot be selfish, otherwise they would go out of business or have to have a monopoly and coerce you to buy. Doing self-interest is the pillar of, of economics. That means I do this because it's good for me, and you buy it because it's good for you, and we have a voluntary exchange in self-interest that makes the economy grow. That's what I'm talking about with, with investments uh, of these kinds. Let me just give you two quick examples if I have time. I have a friend in Kenya um, who owns a, uh, a shirt shop. She makes T-shirts and basic clothing. And I, you know, I, I, I ran a consulting firm that did business strategy in, on certain environments. And we would go into emerging markets and help 
come up with business strategies for the for the company. So we weren't in, we weren't in non we were for profit and we were a consulting firm, but all, but ended up going into these territories because that's very uncertain. And I asked her to show me her her. Uh, Revenue cycle, because every business is cyclical. And she showed me the revenue cycle. It's six months, it goes up, and then whoosh, it goes down. It's six months, it goes up, and then whoosh, it goes down. There's no season over there. So it's not like, you know, then winter comes and nobody buys a shirt anymore. Because in Kenya, you can wear a shirt all the time. And uh, I said, I can't make sense of it. And she says, oh, that, that's when the ship arrives. That's when charity comes in. And they give away the clothing. Then my market goes away. Can, can you see how charity, uh, there is a situation where charity hurts. On the other hand, if you deal with people who, uh, who go there to solve charity, and you deal with them from my perspective of working, I worked with a super entrepreneur also in Kenya who had um, a growing AAA growers. They do uh, ready to eat uh, vegetable dips. You know, vegetables with the dip and they ship this to England and they have a huge market share. They have purification of water on the on the ground so that they pass European import uh, restrictions to make sure, you know, because with the local water and so, but they purify the water and it's perfect. He needed $2 million of expansion. We helped him with some strategy and he needed $2 million of expansion uh, money and I went to all the local NGOs, all the international NGOs and says, I need $2 million for this guy because this is the expansion, you know, the jobs and everything. And I couldn't get the money. And then eventually, you know, you meet the people at the beer, at, at the local place where everybody goes of, this, of the NGO world. And I said, now tell me really. I mean, this, look, I know a good business opportunity if I see one. That is going to kill it. And you know what he said? He said, I know. That's why I can't do it. Because if he gets rich, we'll look really bad. Do you see? We have created an environment where poverty has become a business. Therefore, more poverty means more business. We have misaligned our incentives to bring people out of poverty. The beauty with an organization like this that we're, we're talking about today is that their objectives are actually transcendent. They're after transcendent values of humanity. And they have an anthropology of the human person that they actually help them because they're the neighbor, they're, they're one's neighbor. If you do that this way and you focus on those social, uh, to build up a social capital, then you're not going to be saying, well, this person, is, we can't have it if this person becomes rich. The best thing that happen, can happen to a country in Africa is to have a Bill Gates. Because look what Bill Gates does here. Right? They, entrepreneurs always reinvest their money. They always, they're not going to use their money, they, they reinvest their money. There was one other question that remained unanswered. Can I answer it? Okay. The question about subsidiarity and, and the common good. Oh, although one, one other footnote on this. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I was in Nairobi this summer, I, I saw um, that there is now a, a Kenyan-made sitcom mm -hmm. about development yeah. NGOs. I've seen You've it. seen it? Yeah. And, uh, and, and the, the NGO in, the, in the sitcom, the name of the NGO, it tells you a lot what the makers, right, these are Kenyans. And so an indigenously generated sitcom about a development NGO. The name of the NGO is Aid for Aid. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, I don't remember the name of the show. I just, I, you know, was, but um, uh, so subsidiarity, this is a really, that's a really important question because subsidiarity is only intention with the common good if it's misunderstood. 
right? Subsidiarity does not mean merely the devolution of power and authority and decision making to local authorities, okay? Um, uh, subsidiarity, subsidiarity is a way of realizing the common good in part because it also means subsidium, assistance. It means that the larger entities help the smaller entities realize their ends. Mm -hmm. they, they do what can't be done otherwise. A Catholic perspective on development does not uh, uh, undervalue or regard the, the state or regard the state as being bad or evil. On the contrary, there are some things in development that can only be done by central authority. Okay? Look at what's happening in, in West Africa with the health systems right now. If you need greater evidence that civil society by itself can't do certain things, you've got it in front of your eyes in a tragic way. So Catholic perspective is not opposed to the state. Yeah. Now, it is true that a lot of times it's going to be really hard to maintain the right to discern well what kinds of things ought to be allocated to the states and when we need to, to help the state build up its institutional structures to accomplish what can't be done and, and when that, that begins to usurp the, you know, the, the authority that could be done at a, effectively and better in, at levels closer to the person. Those are prudential decisions that are certainly hard to make. But in principle, there's never a conflict. How do you say, you bring the state in what, because of common good? Or sub, why are you talking about the state? He didn't ask for the state. Yeah, I thought did. you said no, common... The, the question also the went on to ask specifically about common the state. Good. Yeah. yeah, the because role of the state. How do we determine the role of the state, ah, he asked. Okay, yeah. So, there's only tension. These are all of these Catholic social doctrine terms. Only may they, there is human dignity, which is a big circle, and all of these other terms go inside. So they make only sense in the context of human dignity. If you take them out and you just use them as a management principle, they lose the root, right? It's like instead of, you know, a flower needs the root, then you just cut the flower off and it'll wilt, right? So. Uh, this only makes the reason why there's no tension is because if the goal is then is is the recognition of human dignity and a flourishing of human dignity, then you can put all of these in the middle, and they actually there's no tension because they all help in this greater goal. Great. Well, thank you, everyone. I know there are more questions, but we're going to close here, and you'll have time. We'll have some refreshments after, and time to ask more questions. But I'm just left with this one thought, which is that. Um, and, and gratitude for you guys for coming out here tonight, for all of our, our audience um, for participating with us tonight. I'm left with the thought that, you know, you said that development is so fundamentally in, um, connected, entwined with education, which is definitely something that AFSI um, holds very dear. But uh, I'm also remembering that, you know, if, we, if we're going to go out and educate others, we also need to be educated and continuously being mm -hmm. educated. And tonight was part of that education for me. Uh, so thank you very much for coming. Um, and let's give a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, one, one last thank you to, to the other co-sponsors of tonight's event, besides AFCUSA, the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, Crossroads Cultural Center, the Catholic University of America's School of Business and economics and the Catholic Information Center. So thanks to all of those people. Thank you.